I want to start today by reading a story about a pair of feuding neighbors in Tampa, Florida, and a judge's unique solution to their problem. So this is uh, from ABC News. Apparently, uh, uh, <clears throat> a little bit ago in January, I don't remember which year it was. I don't think it was this year. Um, I need to look up my references. But uh, Tony Ali and Jose Linares of Karen Road in Tampa began throwing punches, not pies, as their conflict reached a boiling point. Linares had complained, quote, for years that Ali had played his music so loud it was disruptive, and Linares repeatedly called police on his neighbor. Finally, one night last winter, Linares confronted Ali, and a fight broke out. And when it was over, Linares was face down in a puddle, and Ali was charged with first-degree battery, a misdemeanor. A jury found Ali guilty, and Judge Paul Huey of the Hillsborough County Circuit Court sentenced him to six months probation, 50 hours of community service, and half a year of neighborhood get-togethers. <laughs> and before handing down the unusual sentence, Huey made a biblical reference. Quote, love your neighbor as yourself, Huey said. Jesus said that a long time ago. So basically, after this fight and this conviction, um, the judge sentenced Ali to probation and potlucks. <laughs> now, what do you think? Because I'm wondering what I want you to think about today is whether the judge was actually onto something here. And we've been, for the last four weeks, exploring uh, life in cities, and particularly life in Philadelphia. And we've talked about the blessings of Philly. We've talked about why we should invest in the city, how we can get started, what if people aren't really interested, and what we have to offer. And this week we come to this question. What happens... If you find an individual, systems, or even the city itself seems to be against you. Let's say that person or thing becomes what feels like your enemy. They're fighting against you. How can you overcome your enemy even as you look to invest in this great city to make it even better? And so we're going to look at that today, and in the process, we're going to dive into one of the richest, most powerful teachings of Jesus. And I think what we're going to see is actually that Judge Huey was onto something. Does sound interesting? Yeah, a little bit? All right, let's read the passage. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1, and then uh, 14 through 21. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, Today we're looking to tackle this subject of getting, getting over on your enemies, if you will. And we're going to look at a principle, a practice, and power as keys to a different approach to overcoming your enemies. 
And I want to dive right in because I think the overriding principle in this passage can be seen in verse 17 and verse 21. And if you didn't pick up on it, 17 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the basic principle here is this. If you return evil for evil, you will be overcome by evil. If you return evil for evil, you will be overcome by evil. Another way to say this is you can't use the devil's tools to defeat the devil. They're his tools, and they only work for him. And if you think that you can wield them, you're fooling yourself and setting yourself on a path to become the very thing that you hate. I think the most classic example of this in, in our contemporary culture uh, is the Lord of the Rings, right? With the, the Ring of Power. You guys familiar with this story, I think? Probably works its way into like 50% of sermons across the United States on a <laughs> weekly basis. But it's true. It's, it's this picture of this, this weapon, this ring, created by someone who's all evil, right? And people who are generally good think that they can use that weapon to defeat the big, big bad guy. But what they don't realize is that as people, they're flawed and they have their own weaknesses that that ring plays against. And not only that, uh, the ring itself sort of represents a shortcut towards victory over evil. But usually there is no shortcut to victory over evil. The path is long and it takes sacrifice and there's cost. And so the ring symbolizes... uh, 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 losing touch with our own vulnerability and weakness and trying to cut forward and take a shortcut to what takes a long time to get to. And there's real truth there. If we, re- if we ignore our own weakness and avoid sacrifice, essentially what we end up doing is putting ourselves in this made-up position, this artificial, artificial position of power. Here's how it usually happens, because you might not normally think, oh, that's what's happening here. So let's say... Let's just start with a neighbor. Does something to annoy, hurt, or harass us. And we think that we'll just give as good as we've taken, right? And in the process, we forget our own weakness and don't even consider sacrifice or bearing with our neighbors. Instead, we set ourselves up in this position to judge what they deserve. We know what our neighbors deserve for their behavior, and we're going to take care of it ourselves, either with an outward action, I don't know, trimming back, they're cutting their hedges down, shoveling snow on their car, leaving a nasty note, I don't know, whatever it would be, or with an inward attitude that we just decide in our own head, and our own heart. We may not actually do anything, but we punish them in our hearts. We imagine what we would like to say, or we would like to do, or what we would like to see happen. We root against them. It's like we're practicing some kind of psychological voodoo on them, sticking little pins in them in our hearts, right? Like doling out justice one needle at a time. But what we don't realize is that actually we aren't equipped to judge. No matter how right we know we are. Think of it this way. When someone lies to you, what do you think? They're a liar, right? They lied to me. 
when you lie to someone, and we all do this, what do you think? Well, it's complicated. (laughs) Right? There were extenuating circumstances. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the whole story. So what's the truth? Well, the truth is actually somewhere in between. There are always complicating circumstances. That neighbor who cussed you out or plays their music too loud or doesn't take care of their house. Do you know why? Do you know the whole story? Only God does. He's the only qualified judge. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And God has a big advantage over us when it comes to casting judgments. First, who are we to judge anyone? I think I've said that a few times. And any person, I think, with just a shred of humility understands that if any of our lives were strictly held up to the light, we would have a long list of things in our own lives that deserve judgment. And Jesus famously said, do not judge or you too will be judged for good reason. But God doesn't have that limitation. Second, we don't, as much as we think we do, we don't have the capacity to judge fairly. How can we judge? We who not only have our own sins to account for, our own faults, but we who are hurt by the very situation we find ourselves in. We who are biased. We who are limited by our own imperfections and inability to see the whole picture. If we were to judge, we might be too soft on the guilty party or more likely too harsh. And when we judge, we run the risk of becoming the very thing that we hate. If we judge too harshly, we become oppressive to the people around us. We become the oppressor. We give back evil for evil, and we are overcome by it. You see how that works? So in this passage, we're encouraged not to judge and not to return what we've received. Instead, we're encouraged to release the wrongs done to us and return good for evil. Now, what does this look like in practice? I think this passage gives us just a few ideas. So in practice, I think it can be summarized this way. Use uncommon actions to oppose and overcome evil. Uncommon actions to oppose and overcome evil. One that's really clear is bless. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, there are lots of ways to bless people. But here I think the blessing is shown as a contrast to cursing. And it seems the author is encouraging us to speak good things about those who've wronged us. Speak them into being. He's asking us to pray for our neighbors who give us the most headaches. The party and leaders we don't agree with. The systems that are broken and hurting our friends. And it's hard to stay angry at someone you're praying for. Even if it's just Help my neighbor not be such an idiot. (laughs) All right, you turn a corner. Keep going. (laughs) Second, forgive. This is huge. And I like to point out before I say anything else that forgiving is not saying that what your neighbor did or what's happening in in the system around you or in any particular situation is okay. 
Rather, it's owning, owning and naming that you've been wronged, that it's not okay, but then releasing the right to vengeance. That's what forgiving is. It's not blowing it off or saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about it. It's okay. No, it's like, yes, that is wrong. That hurt me. That is hurting me, whatever the case may be. But turning over the right to vengeance. Desmond Tutu, the Nobel Peace Prize-winning archbishop who stood up against apartheid in South Africa and then led this thing, a, a national movement towards healing and reconciliation as the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, describes this process in this way when he, speaking of letting go of forgiveness. He says, quote, well, basically you're saying, I'm abandoning my right to revenge, to payback. By the fact that you've abused me, you've hurt me, you are, whatever it is that you've done, you have wronged me, but that you've given me a certain right over you that I could refuse to forgive you. I could say that I have the right to retribution. When I forgive, I say, I jettison that right, and I open the door of opportunity to you, make a new beginning. That's what I do when I forgive you. And let's remember that forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Feeling is a process. It's ending the voodoo, stopping the scenarios, praying for the blessing instead of entertaining what you'd like to do. The next thing we can see in this passage is a way to, um, what this might look like in practice is serve. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So not only are we instructed not to take revenge, but we're to look for ways to help and serve those who've wronged us. Now this is really a different way to live. This does not come naturally, certainly at least at first. This is, and you know, a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, especially when we're first planning this church, every week, this is the radical teaching of Jesus. Man, this is what I'm telling you right now. It's radical. Oh, man, this is radical every week. This is radical. <laughs> this is. This really is different. This is one of the gems of the faith of Jesus that you'll find almost nowhere else, if anywhere. One of the things that makes him and his teachings and his life distinct a way to respond to evil that isn't fighting fire with fire, but also isn't getting treated as doormats. Although it can sound like it if you don't understand what's going on. Here's how you know that this is more than just taking it and not firing back. More than just being a doormat. It says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Huh? What? All of the sacrifice, forgiveness, service is leading towards what? Burning coals on someone's head. This approach is not about how to be a martyr. It's about how to bring transformation. It's not about how to be a martyr. It's about how to bring transformation. Jesus' life was not about Here's how you can be a profound martyr. 
It was about here's how you can bring, bring transformation to the world around you and your own life. And one way to do that is to humbly oppose what isn't right. You see, blessing, forgiving, serving aren't ways to give in to evil. They are ways to oppose it. They are ways to oppose something that actually has the power to transform things. There has been a lot of discussion over the years about what this idea of dumping hot coals on someone's head means. How, how should it be interpreted? And scholars have written a lot of things, but here's what it likely means. It's a super practical image. You know, back in the time when this was written, cities had walls. And occasionally there would be an invading army that would try and conquer the city, and they would try and scale those walls. And what the city dwellers would do is they would pour over the side of the walls hot, burning oil or coals. Now, why would you do that? It might be pretty obvious, but if your hair is on fire, it's hard to use a sword or a bow and arrow or even advance. It stops you in your tracks. If someone is treating you poorly, treating them poorly just reinforces their motivation to harm you, keeps them moving forward. Returning good for evil, however, can be incredibly unsettling. It can stop people in their tracks. It perhaps is the only thing that can cause them to reconsider their behavior and their motivation. It's the only thing that can lead to positive change. Opposing people in the way that we're talking about today, through blessing, forgiveness, service, is actually a way to love people, even and especially our enemies. You know, in this, this, you know, one of our tendencies when people hurt us, or systems hurt us, or whatever hurt us, we don't agree with certain people or certain policies, is to say, forget you. To flip on the bird and say, I don't care about you or what you think or what you do so that I can just move on. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in this passage, it says that this attitude actually and this behavior is returning evil on people for evil. It says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. We're not given the option of ignoring what people think or our enemies. And Paul, the author, doesn't give us the option of not trying to know or understand our enemies or the people who harm us. Instead, we're given the charge to love our neighbors. We aren't allowed to forget them or marginalize them or enjoy offending them. The way of Jesus is to love by proactively and humbly opposing them. That's different. That is fundamentally countercultural and radical. And this is what is part of what makes Jesus so different from anyone else. But, (laughs) 
That also sounds impossible to live out. Are you with me? Does it feel a little bit like that? Who can actually do that? Well, this passage also points to a source of power for this type of difficult, subversive, and transformative way to live. In verse 12, it says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now here, Paul says, in view of God's mercy. Now he could have put that a few different ways. He could have said, because of God's mercy, or remember God's mercy, or something like that, right? And it might sort of sound like it, saying exactly the same thing. But Paul chooses a word that encourages his readers to take in, to view the mercy of God as if engaging like a breathtaking panoramic view of God's mercy. This is about being being overcome, surrounded, enthralled, and moved by the expanse the majesty, the depth, the glory of God's mercy. See, the power of God's mercy isn't in the doctrine of God's mercy. It's in the experience of God's mercy. And to experience it, the idea here, the best way I can put it, is to absorb the panorama of God's mercy. I know that's kind of a funny way, a big word to say it. Hopefully you have a phone where you have this panorama view. You know, you can take a photo, but you got to go all the way around to get the whole thing. You know, try and make sense of this. Um, I looked up the way that people have described their experience of viewing the Grand Canyon. And these are just a few of the descriptions I found. Here's what people wrote. Hear you, the Grand Canyon, a marvelous sight to behold. An immense presence sinks into your body as you stare down into its caving reddish-orange colored streaks. Someone else wrote, looking down intently into that vast chasm of overpowering beauty and mystery, you get the sense that Mother Earth has opened her bosom and is whispering, come. Peer into me, for this is where you're from. Someone else wrote, Beautiful doesn't begin to describe it. A flower is beautiful. But this is beautiful the way that a person is beautiful. Terrifying with its jagged edges, yet seductive in, with its crevices that hide so many secrets. See, these, these aren't descriptions of the technical dimensions and hues and colors of the Grand Canyon. These are descriptions of the impact, the feeling, the sense, the mystery, the belonging, the change that comes from experiencing something bigger than you, that overwhelms you, that speaks to something more true, more real, and more beautiful than the typical way that we live. This is what we need to experience. Typical evil, typical is evil for evil. Anyone can do that. 
but has zero mystery, little power, and absolutely no beauty. Good for evil speaks to something greater than the ordinary, yet more true. It speaks to love. And we see, we see this in this teaching, but we experience it as we view what Jesus has done and comprehend its height and depth and power. He was the king who came down, the judge that allowed himself to be judged, who loved his enemies to the point of death, who on the cross said of his murderers, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And this passage is Paul's attempt to explain this and to break it down for Jesus' followers so that they could live it out as well. This is this extreme mercy when experienced, is what empowers those who would follow Jesus to live in similar ways. So as we head into the week, I want to suggest a practice to you. Does something ever happen to you as you're going around just about your daily lives and you're interrupted by something that happens around you? And have you ever thought ever to yourself, ugh, Philly. Anyone? Come on. Anyone ever thought that? Oh, Philly. You know, Philly, you're killing me. Now, I know here we always just talk really positive about Philly, as we should, but we have our moments, right? So um, earlier this week, I heard a story about someone whose life was interrupted by Philly, and I want to invite Emily to come up and share that story. This is Emily DePenning. Give a round of applause. So, Emily, now, when you told me this story, you didn't start with, oh, Philly, full disclosure. But what, what, what's your story that I made you get up here and tell? So, this happened a couple years ago. I had just graduated nursing school. And so, a bunch of my classmates and I had a celebration in Center City just to celebrate our graduation, and it was late. It was probably like 11.30 midnight, and a friend and I were like, okay, it's time to head back to West Philly. So we went to like 19th Street um, Trolley Station to wait for the 34 to come back to the city, and we're waiting, we're waiting. And some lady comes down, and she's like got a nice black dress on, looks like she'd been somewhere, you know, fancy, more formal. But she doesn't have a purse. She's not wearing shoes. And she's just sitting there by herself, and then all of a sudden she starts taking her nylons off, or tights, whatever you want to call them. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. What's going on? We're kind of, my friend and I are watching her. I'm like, I wonder if she needs help. I wonder if she's okay. What's happening? But then the trolley's coming, and it's kind of like, it was a little internal, like, well, I'm tired, and oh, I hope she's okay. we got to get on the trolley. But she gets on the trolley, too, and ends up sitting right across the row from us. So then it was kind of like, all right, she's here. So what are we going to do about this? Uh, and so we asked her, like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, where does, what is this trolley? Where does it go? I don't know where it goes. And it, she, would, it, she seemed like she was under the influence of something, whether intoxicated or some other type of drugs. It's hard to tell exactly what was going on. But she was definitely very confused, didn't know where she was, lived in the suburbs, didn't even live in Philly, so she didn't know where she was headed. Or She, said, she told us she was at a party. Um, she's a lawyer. She was at a Christmas party, and she just... I don't know. We were confused, and she was confused, but she didn't know where she was going. So we're like, well, do you have someone you can call? So she knew her husband's number, so we gave her our cell phone so she could call him, and we ended up getting off at 40th Street and taking her to Allegro Pizza, 
and ordered her some pizza, and we got pizza, and we sat with her and waited for her husband to come and pick her up, and had a very interesting, confused conversation. <laughs> Until he got there, and he could take her home, and he was very grateful, and she was very grateful. that. And it was, in the, it was December, so it was freezing cold. She had no coat on. So we gave her our coat, and we helped her get home. So, yeah, it was not what we wanted to do at midnight, but we're <laughs> glad we could help her out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Emily. So I heard about this story, and I was just like, here's Philadelphia interrupting a friend of mine's life. And I know that happens to us all the time. And I think sometimes, even though we love Philadelphia, Philadelphia can feel like our enemy because it's interrupting what we're trying to get about in our day. Or, or it's annoying us. Or there are some annoying people. Nobody in this room, but there are some annoying people in Philadelphia. Um, and so this week, I want to give you an exercise to do just to see what happens. I would like to challenge you, encourage you to pray Pray to God and invite him to have the city of Philadelphia interrupt your life this week. Now, you probably don't have to pray for that, do you? <laughs> now, by interruption, I don't want to turn off your ability to be discerning. Not every interruption uh, is one you want to lean into, uh, or safe even. So I'm not saying that you have to lean into the first interruption that comes along. But I want you to take some time, talk to the Holy Spirit, pray, invite him to interrupt you, and then let's plan to take a different approach to interruptions that normally we would consider annoyances. And in preparation for this interruption, maybe take some time uh, to think, pray, meditate on how you want to respond when this interruption takes place. How can you put into practice the things we talked about in the sermon today? And you've got notes. You can look back. Oh, yeah, bless, serve. Pour some coals on the head of Philadelphia if you want to. And what perspective do you want to take and how do you want to treat people when you're interrupted? And this is a good one. What will you do to look for God in the interruption, what he's up to? And when it happens, if you see God, act. Act. Do something. And then tell somebody your story afterwards. I'm so thankful for Emily get up and sharing because my gosh, and I think we lose touch with this. We need to hear stories of what God is doing in the world around us. We've got to hear them. We've got to hear stories of God being alive or of people trying to follow Jesus and looking for what God might be up to. So if you're in a small group, tell your small group. Send me a note with your story. Find David Bratsy. He's with uh, the youth down the street, but he'll be back. And he's filming stories of people responding to the activities and... Uh, that are a part of this whole series. Sit down with him. Tell him your story, and we might be able to share it more broadly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are so different from, you really are so different from anyone I've ever heard of, read of, studied anything. Um, and so we just pray that somehow as we sing songs to you, as we worship you, as we're together 
as we do life this week, that uh, we could connect to your mercy in a new way that is bigger than us, that isn't commonplace, but speaks to our hearts and our minds, um, that inspires us, that changes the way we view everything else. Um, let us connect to you in that way. I pray that these exercises would just be small little opportunities to do that uh, during the week. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.